This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining me again today at the Future of Cybercrime podcast. I have a very special guest with me, Reiner Washburn. And why special? Because here we have somebody who has a very diverse security background. I'm talking about counterterrorism background, a very wide expanse of intelligence as well as a part of his leanings. I mean, Reiner... Thank you for joining us. I'd love for you to actually tell the audience more about yourself, a little bit more in depth. Can you just introduce yourself and let us know what you're up to? And thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here. So yes, a little bit about myself. As you noted that I have a unique kind of array of a background here, especially in the intelligence world, but also in the cybersecurity realm, you know, working in industries such as uh, Department of Defense or national security in general or in academia where I currently am now at the University of Maryland, specifically the START Center. And so about me in particular, my journey's been going on for about 10 years now uh, within the cybersecurity world, whether it is from where I've worked as an analyst, uh, interning, now doing project management and research. So, and into a variety of fields, specifically with cybersecurity. So from ICSOT, information influence operations, risk management, uh, compliance, and then also research into general threat intelligence. So um, very varied, and I'm hoping to provide as much information as I can about that and more. So again, glad to talk about it and glad to be here. Thank you for that. You have a lot of experience in academia. And oftentimes when people think about security researcher, intelligence analyst, even threat analyst, anyone who's working in that cybersecurity space and is actively monitoring, detecting, and helping prevent threats, a good number of people think that that person is employed by some company working in a SOC. You are an academic. So I would love to know what your life looks like day in and day out. What does a cyber intelligence researcher do? How are you doing that at the University of Maryland would start? Now, that's a great question. So, you know, in looking at it is, it is different from the traditional roles I've had, whether in the private or public sector as an analyst right, and cybersecurity. So as a researcher, specifically with cyber intelligence, that is more of a broad ground to look at the various problems that we're facing, both from an applicability, sort of like, what can we apply? And then there's also just the basic ground truth issues that we're trying to solve on, well, is there, you know, an X, Y, and Z to the problem of, you know, ransomware? And when you're an academic, your role is not necessarily to drive a profit or answer a public service in regard to, you know, protection and so forth, like in the government. It's to answer the question and then also provide that to stakeholders, whether they be in the private sector or public. And so a day in the life is really kind of looking at how can we solve problems that are presented to both of these sectors, but also even within our own area of academia in cybersecurity, right? What and that can be in the traditional sense of training and instruction, right? So can we help uh, foster better curriculum and certifications? Can we foster better curriculum 
in traditional programs in computer science or those that are branching off into cybersecurity disciplines, right? Be it undergraduate or master's programs. So that's kind of like what the day in the life is in a nutshell. But some of the great tidbits that I've had uh, specifically working at University of Maryland is that I've had the unique privilege of working with a diverse group of people and not just one specific background. Because um, unlike what I've had in certain instances in, um, in the private sector in particular, academia does afford the opportunity to work in an interdisciplinary manner to solve these complex problems. So Typically, when I'm looking at work, looking at how can we solve issues with misinformation, for instance, it's not just I'm working with computer science people or computer engineers. I'm working with computational sociologists or political scientists. So that is a very unique aspect to the, the current uh, role that I have as a cyber intelligence researcher is really building an interdisciplinary team working with those groups to solve these problems. So the fact that you can work with a good number of diverse people across disciplines. It's not like like in an organization and be in private or public where you're working within a security team and with other business functions, all with the same strategic outlook in mind, protecting the organization or facilitating operations in the organization. You are working to further the knowledge potential in cybersecurity, and it's an open map. So this is what I'm hearing. And you know what I think? I wonder, actually, how different is it being in academia in comparison to private and public in that you have that open map and everyone else has the business functions to push for the strategic objective of an organization? What's the difference? What drives you? What drives all of you? I think the the big driver here for us is that when you're working in public sector, when you're in SACU or so forth, you know, or in the private sector, even when I've worked and interned in places like Mandiant, right? You have a mission focus. Again, that's similar in academia, but the core aspect to us in academia is research versus investigations, right? We're not analysts, we are researchers. So we are going from not just answering the immediate issue, like that we see in the intelligence cycle, like what's the problem? How do we collect on it? We are going back to, in some cases, looking at the genesis of where that problem came from, you know? So like how some people liken academics to healthcare providers, right? Like we analyze the issue, we see what are symptoms, what is the direct disease, what's the cause, what's the effect, right? How can we better treat it, right? Can we come up with one solution or multiple solutions? And then we provide that to those who are in the field. And that's, again, where I was, you know, and where a lot of the audience is, it's in the practitioner realm where we can provide these tools or frameworks that we have developed in academia as a potential solution or one of the guides towards a final solution in these areas, especially in places like threat intelligence or digital forensics or instant response or, broadly speaking, risk management. So that's kind of the biggest divide between us is that we're there for the research and not in an investigation because there is at times where it can be a little confusing where we will be conducting research, right? And it is a product that is for maybe a private sector company or a public sector entity. And the role that we're uh, focused on is uh, developing a tool for that. And that kind of can blur the line because you see that all the time in the private sector, you know, where they develop tools to help build out their portfolio or help sustain or reinforce their product line, you know, in cybersecurity. So that's sometimes where you see a blur. But at the end of the day, we're trying to answer a question, right? We're trying to answer a research question, right? So. Yeah, you 
don't have to respond to incidents and put out fires. So you have that peace mm-hmm. in mind to just explore, which is key to building good research. Do you think that private and public organizations could benefit? Maybe it's rhetorical on my end, but do you think that <laughs> they could benefit from having an arm in their security functions for purely just research? I mean, they quote that threat intelligence, right? However, there are still boundaries drawn in that function. What's your experience with that? Yeah, so I definitely agree. And I have seen that more and more specifically within the private sector industry on building out like a research shop within your organization. And so because they're seeing the value of like, well, as a company, and this is not a thing towards companies, right? Their motive is profit and revenue. So that they can provide their service, pay the employees for the work and so forth, but is the profit generating stream. Whereas research is inherently not about profit. It's about research and it's about answering questions in a sense of public service. But private sector companies, especially in cybersecurity, have to deal with the threats on the ground every day, you know, 24-7, 365. But one of the key benefits, though, to building out a shop of research, you know, in your organization, if you can afford to do so, really does help create, I think, cut down on groupthink issues, especially when you're developing, when you're focused on a specific threat space whether it be ransomware in the cybercrime realm, influence operations, information operations, or uh, state actor threats on OT and ICS, right? Having uh, grounded researchers embedded within your organization can help break the group thing and actually help refresh, or I would like to say, rehydrate the intel cycle, like put Um, holes in areas where we need to really focus on, you know, hey, can we look at this differently? Is there a way we can enhance the product differently? But also, if you can't afford to do, you know, standing up your own shop, collaboration with an academic unit outside, right? So working with folks at places like Start, right? Like where my role there is to help build out the cyber intelligence kind of capacity, which is a broad spectrum. So it's not just like threat and tell work. It's like we're looking at various aspects of the cyber domain. And that allows uh, private sector or public sector to come and say like, hey, can we partner you with on this? And, you know, it's a collaboration. It could be three months, six months, years, right? So it's more contractually based. And and that actually is in terms of, I would say, helps with overhead for maybe more medium to smaller scale companies that want to partner and do research on this, but don't necessarily have the budget to provide it in-house. So there is a benefit to having research and collaboration with academia. The benefits are profound. You have diverse groups of people that are furthering this function. And I'm actually going to stay on that and hone in there with START at UMaryland. And just for those that aren't familiar with it, can you tell us how this whole research process happens to bring in interdisciplinary researchers, academics to build an intelligence product? That's one, because I think diversity is something that we are really keen on in cybersecurity and building. And then two, to further on that, not just the research product, how it's built ground up and what start is, but also what has your collaboration with one case study, one organization look like? Great question. So start is interesting as an entity because it started out as a center of excellence set up in the mid 2000s for the Department of Homeland Security Center of Excellence that was housed at the University of Maryland. And it's acronym, as it states, is the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. But it has moved into what we call an emeritus status as a COE. Uh, so it's not directly linked on that. 
But since I've been brought on in 2019, particularly full-time from a, as being a, separate from being a researcher, which I was for a couple of years, Start has really started to build out its interdisciplinary profile on what it offers besides just looking at terrorism issues. And so like for me in particular, I'm working within what's called UWT, the Unconventional Weapons and Technology Division in Start. And that's where we look at everything from biosecurity, CBRN threats, so chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear, to cyber threats and cybersecurity, and sometimes linked together with cyber, but also uh, its own independent place of cognitive security, right? So this area of influence and um, misdis and malinformation, MDM. And so what that has brought is that with the expansion outward into these other areas, START has gathered a unique cadre of folks from different disciplines. So as I mentioned, like computational sociologists, uh, cybersecurity experts, and folks such as myself, political scientists, forensic anthropologists, even like that, right? So you have a very diverse background to fill these needs. And when you look at it from the perspective of a company that's trying to engage on research, Particularly what happens is, is like, you know, they put out either a broadcast bulletin of how they're going to fund research for a whole year. They might have an established grant system, like, for instance, at Facebook with their grant system, which they contract out for to various organizations, be it a think tank or even universities like Stanford University, for example. And we will apply to those grants. And if we win it, then we start up, build out an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, develop a SAL pull the team together and ask it like, what are the questions? What do they want as an end product? And that's pretty much in a nutshell how it works. But because of how I would say Unique's uh, start is developing in its evolution, we're seeing a, a, a unique divergence from the traditional path of how and where we get uh, funding or where our research goes, right? We've moved away from the traditional counterterrorism public sector space to being more broadly in not only public sector, other entities, you know, such as in like healthcare or so forth, or we have brought into places like the private sector from places in energy, financial services, maritime shipping, so on and so forth. You've really covered the board with, <laughs> with your research. Here's something that's been on my mind for some time, paywalls. Subscription mm. paywalls for cybersecurity research. It's gotten to a point these days where I think if you don't have the money to pay for information and intelligence, you really are falling behind, especially in threat and intel. And mm. it does irk me that a lot of organizations build just priceless research that we absolutely need, all cybersecurity professionals, and you have to pay for it. So you are performing research products, creating research products as well. What I mean by that is presenting them as well as building them with the motive to promote a public service, which is what you said a little mm -hmm. bit before. What do you think the future of cyber intelligence and research looks like from academia? And how do you think it looks like from the private sector? What are your thoughts on all of this? Interesting. So again, you can't fault how businesses approach this area. I mean, again, they are a for-profit entity. Their job is to make profit. There is no shame in this, right? And so when they develop a security product, a research product, even if they have a research background or shop within them, you know, there is either the paywall issues you've mentioned or, you know, the subscription cost is just enormously high. I mean, and 
it, that can definitely put things off, especially if you are either a research unit trying to get more data from the private sector to help, again, in a way, hydrate our own work. Or if you are, you know, a small little sock that's working on this from another medium-sized company, right? And you're trying to get more threat intel. And so there is a problem for that for companies to provide that service to then make it cost-effective. I mean, but at the end of the day, they have to price out things in a certain way to help, you know, pay for the product itself, pay for the employees, and overall. So you can't fault that. But from the academic perspective, what we are trying to do is like, you know, we have to pay for our own selves too. We have to, you know, pay employees and so forth. But the kernel truth, though, is that we're trying to provide that public service of like, if I can provide a data set on ransomware incidents, right? I'm just as an example, you know, and I can help that inform with variables to help build out more proactive risk management services, right? And that can help out medium-sized companies, public sector entities, then that's a win for us, right? And of course, we'll have to have some type of conversation in some sense, but you know, we try to make it as free and as available as possible because again, the cornerstone of academics is, you know, knowledge should be free in a sense, right? Knowledge should yeah. be the democratized flow of information. That it should be available to whoever seeks it. And with that said, you know, there are caveats to that in some ways. And obviously, as researchers, we have to have a salary as well. So there are times when we have to provide, you know, a paid product, but the paywall cycle, the paywall issue, I should say, definitely is something I think is going to remain for a while. I don't see how they get around it effectively at this current point, because you have, again, that need for these private sector companies to not only support, sustain the product that they've built, but also support the workers and the employees under them, right? Because that's what that subscription goes into, right? Yeah, it just makes um, sense. It, it just mm-hmm. makes sense. And for us, even at start, we've looked at things about it's like, how can we get better data ourselves? How can we hydrate our own you know, research? And that's been a problem, too, where we don't have as an academic institution. We're not a Fortune 500 company with deep pockets. Right. You know, we're an academic institution. And so when it comes to us trying to find ways around these paywalls, it is difficult. And even though you have organizations that really do try to work out, I've touched on with a lot of companies in cybersecurity, folks I've worked with and so forth around the gambit, you know, on academic discounts, right? You know, or how they look at it, like the nonprofit discounts around paywalls. And in some cases it works, it's affordable, it's manageable. And in other cases, it's not enough, right? So, Mm -hmm. but again, it's like, that's kind of where the state is. And it is a really tough nut to crack. I mean, I will say that if we can have better collaboration where it's like we're able to work with the private sector industry partner on a product, and then we can develop through the MOU and then like through the MOU, if we stand it up with them, like, hey, portions of this research should be publicly accessible, right? That provides meaningful, actionable information to the public and to those who would want to have it, right? may not be all the thrills and everything that you get from that final product, but that's one way private sector could help lessen that threshold if they want to provide their product out there. And then for the smaller entities that want to get more data. And again, a second order effect with that could be it's a great PR aspect to it, right? That they're providing that (laughs) free-ish data to the public. Yeah, yeah. And the benefit that's even greater than all of that is that fostering collaboration among people 
who usually are used to collaborating within their own small circles, expanding their worldview. So now they can look at intelligence from different angles. If we have more private sector companies, we're not, I'm not talking just about cybersecurity vendors. I mean, all mm-hmm. uh, private sector companies starting to work within academia and around academia, you have constantly new generated thought processes, ways of thinking, ingenuity, creativity, because there's time for that function and there is purpose for that function and that open map that I discussed. So I like that hydrate, rehydrate um, mm-hmm. analogy you have. I it, it fits <laughs> so well. It, it fits. Well, I mean, I will say just to touch real quickly on that, it's interesting because I had a, a unique experience with this where we had a large industry entity. Uh, they were a vendor of sorts. And they split their time between working with a private sector cybersecurity firm for actionable data uh, threat intelligence. But then they go to us to help say like, hey, can you help build us out threat modeling, right? Or, and collaborate. So they split that time between the research house under start and then their actionable on the ground data with, you know, a cybersecurity firm. And this is just one instance where the collaboration that ended up with it helped us connect with the partner on the other side. And that has actually helped build out better research and collaboration between us. And now we kind of have a, a nice connection or a nice hose, so to speak, for data from this one firm, right? So it's like just by reaching out and doing collaboration and in these ways, I see the long-term benefits of that, right? So again, it shouldn't be stovepipe. I'm very not a fan of stovepiping things, especially when it comes to intelligence sharing or data sharing in general. Agreed. Agreed. I like this. Collaboration can foster shared and equitable intelligence, grow teams, widen their perspectives, Mm -hmm. foster creativity in teams that rehydration or hydration. And then I think another thing, build out talent pipelines, and then everything else you discussed, Mm -hmm. furthering brands of companies and showing good face and let's say care and due diligence towards cybersecurity by saying, we're going to look at all ways of collaboration to foster a better security environment. So this is the ideal. This is ideal. Yeah. I mean, my end of the day thing is to make things more accessible, not only to private sector and public sector entities, but to the public itself, right? But then there's also the fact like you don't want to be in a position where, let's say, a private sector company comes out with research, but it's only internal research and it can't be vetted that properly. Right. Mm -hmm. So having an independent entity such as, you know, working in collaboration with an academic unit or so forth can actually help elevate that research that they may be produced in house or and so forth. Right. So, again, collaboration is key. And that's how I look at it. Oh, yeah. Great way to look at it. Great way. I got a question for you. In the time that you've collaborated with security functions embedded within organizations, Mm -hmm. can you tell me some strengths you found and some weaknesses? We touched on this a little when we had discussions outside of this podcast. So I think your perspective would really be interesting for a lot of folks to hear. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because the career path I've taken is unique because going across where I have, you definitely see certain behavior issues that crop up, right? Especially in things like the incident response lifecycle. Like when you think you have an incident on hand, I'm, you know, kind of putting my research hat off to the side for a moment and putting back my old analyst hat on. It's like you have an incident that you think you have, you know, you've identified TTPs or so forth. And then you want to escalate that up. You should escalate that up to your manager going forward, but you don't, right? And that's a story I've kind of heard quite a bit. Like that's, there's a, you know, a hesitancy, if you will, 
on the part of the analysts. And it's, I wouldn't say it's truly uh, gobsmacking, you know, systemic across the board, but I have seen it and I've heard about it from colleagues and so forth, where once it gets out of the security zone in your organization, once it gets out of that area and it goes into places like C-suite or mid-level, there is that concern that they may not want to take that incident and run with it or uh, hunt it down, so to speak, right? That's the concern? Is that the hesitancy? Is that why there's hesitancy? Where does that stem from? Well, I think it stems from imaging, right? You see a ton of companies in the last, just think of it in the last five years that, you know, when they have an incident and they don't report about it, and then it comes out eventually, you would think most companies would be like, oh, we should be more proactive on pen testing. We should be more proactive on audits. You know, we should definitely be shoring up on running these exercises with our blue, red, and purple teams, so to speak. But in some cases, that's not what is happening. In a lot of cases, they're like, well, let's just still walk on eggshells and let's hope it never happens to us. Like, as we all know, when they're like, it's not if, it's a matter of when you're hacked, right? And seeing some IR folks find a lot of frustration, I would say, along with the higher-ups not trying to properly fund pen testing or doing regularly quarter audits, in a sense, in this area, especially looking for backgrounds and helping with uh, helping beef up patch management, you know, things like incident response, where they're like, hey, we have an incident that could have been easily avoided if we had done X, Y, and Z prior. I think that's something of concern because you still hear about it. At least I still hear about it. And that's just definitely a weakness. I think I, and it's not, I would say, even like in a geopolitical sense, it's not like just with American companies or so forth. You hear it from all types of companies, right? Because I think there is also a fundamental disconnect in a lot of ways between the security operations group that you have and C-suite, or if it ever gets up there. I mean, so many companies, I think, still see security as an auxiliary, not as a core function of the business. What I'm hearing, incident response analysts, those within the IR cycle are hesitant to report incidences because, as you're saying, Reiner, once it gets escalated, it could potentially cause an image problem. I mean, that's really not the point of IR. Things have Mm -hmm. to be reported to fit into a cycle. Hesitancy can't just be based on the company image, right? What what would happen to the analyst? What what is that root gut feeling of hesitancy stemming from? What fear? Are they afraid that if they report something, they're going to look bad? Like, what is it behaviorally? Well, in one instance, a colleague of mine talked about it as saying there is the fear of retribution in a sense of like, hey, they've alerted us so many times about incidents that really didn't pan out or were more cautionary of anything. So there is the fear that if you keep reporting up or if you report up too many times, that they won't take you more seriously and that could uh-huh. adversely affect you down the road, right? So like, oh, it's the same group of folks or... And it's not necessarily, I'm talking about like employment termination, but again, it's more of like, do we really need to, when you do like a a biannual review on, you know, sock budgeting, right? Do they're like, oh, we can cut back on pen testing, you know, because these are things that have concerns within these and some folks that work in the IR that hesitancy. But again, as I mentioned earlier, like the imaging problem where it's like, oh, we actually have a problem with one of our products or we have a problem, you know, and then reporting that out because, what we are actually noticing too is that from in my colleagues that work in the more policy space, you know, especially those that have worked in places like Capitol Hill and so forth, 
political leaders and so forth are getting more and more frustrated and agitated with like, hey, companies, if you have a problem, you need to report it, right? That's why we're seeing more and more legislation out there pulling towards like, hey, when you have an issue that is compromising, you know, PII of your clients or so forth, or uh, PII of just private uh, the citizens that maybe use your app or so forth, and that's not being reported out, you know, these are issues. And so when you look at it from an IR perspective, a lot of them are like, do I really push the button and send it upstairs? Or do I sit on it and wait and see it, uh, wait and see? So it is something I'm thinking is becoming more and more of an issue. I'm actually kind of interested to see where it plays out, like what companies have had these issues, you know, but again, trying to get data on that too would be hard to get, you know? I mean, I look at like one of the key areas I look at in terms of security concerns is the old, what, 2013 target data breach, right? You know, it's like you had folks that unfortunately had issues with the vendor, third-party vendor issues with the VPN, so on and so forth. And the top brass, we're not really taking care of the shop, so to speak, right? In terms of cybersecurity. Wow. So hesitancy is happening in two different ways. One, the security analyst or rather the incident response analyst is stuck in analysis paralysis. Because mm-hmm. they don't want to, another good one, cry wolf. They, <laughs> they don't mm-hmm. want to say, hey, this didn't work out. False report, false mm-hmm. positive is where I gained my suspicion from. My gut was wrong, or maybe it was just my emotion that was wrong. So analysis paralysis, because perhaps of everything that's going off in that sock, it's hard to see through the noise to find what really matters. So that's hesitancy number one. And then hesitancy number two is even more serious. I mean, comparatively very serious. The organizations that are mitigating certain potential instances of, I guess, attack are not letting the world know. And when they don't let the world know at all, uh, that is also safeguarding intelligence. That, for the sake of ego... And also because of brand image, it's time, I think, for cybersecurity to be a bit more maybe humble about it because everyone is getting attacked at this point. Mm-hmm. So maybe everyone. just saying, hey, all of us, and also here's what to watch out for. Precisely. And that's why it kind of leads me to things of like, you know, one of the things here is, is that if you're looking at from like the IR perspective, and this is hard to do because when someone's hitting on your network and so forth and you're collecting this data, you can't share that data necessarily. It's proprietary, you know, and so forth. But having maybe, and again, as we've talked on before, if you have an internal research shop that can actually help build out and look at like, hey, I want to know all the false positive data that you have so that we can actually collect and see if we find patterns on why we're getting this false positive, right? Instead of just being through the cycle of, you know, one and done it or just archiving it. You know, if you have a research shop in the background that actually can pull down this data, understand the patterns, you know, and that would actually be very interesting as research in and of itself. And then they could publish on that saying like, hey, yeah, here's X, Y, and Z type of incidents that we've seen. 80% of them are false positives, but we're going to publish a paper, a little white paper or so forth, you know, about it to the public to see like, hey, how can you better detect on X, Y, and Z type of threat or so forth, right? So there's there's benefits to engaging on it, right? Oh, Totally. I'm not sure if the world is ready for a conversation about building cybersecurity <laughs> like this into ESG metrics. Um, <laughs> you know, perhaps, hey, how often you report, how often mm-hmm. you try to foster global collaboration, 
things mm-hmm. like that. That that would be a cool idea. Hey, if that's if you have any downtime for research, I don't know if you do. It's a fast moving world, but if you if you do, yeah. that would be a cool thing to look into. So this podcast is called the Future of Cybercrime. I want to get your angle on this, zooming out into the future. What do you think the future of start research is going to look like as you push forward? So is there anything that you see that is totally evolving? And then just generally in the future of cybercrime, you can mm-hmm. choose any time frame you'd like. What do you see as your role in shaping it? Well, that's definitely a big one. So first part of that was start, you know, again, one of the big areas here is like when I was brought on in 2019, it's like really helped build out that portfolio of like, you know, threats and areas that are, you know, the world is becoming more and more closer with. It's sort of the thinking is it's like when we think of how start worked is it was a terrorism studies and research organization. And when you think of terrorism, it's very just like, here's the terrorist event, how it happens, X, Y, and Z. When you think of a cyber threat, cyber attack in particular, it could be something, you know, like a local ransomware event or something as big as like a wiper event like NotPetya, right? The threats are becoming closer and closer to home, so to speak, for people. And so the research that we're looking at is definitely evolving in that focus, especially in the cyber crime kind of world where it's like everyone can be immediately and fully impacted by an attack that happens on a company in Palo Alto a company in Leicester, uh, United Kingdom, or in Bonn, Germany, right? You know, where we have data centers and so forth, where information flows and is stored all over the world. And that makes us much more vulnerable. And that makes us much more like an attack can affect us anywhere and in various ways. And so organizations like Start, we're looking at the designing and building up services and research products to help inform those who are on the ground, you know, SOC managers and so forth, but also risk management uh, focus and compliance folks on how to better inform, like, what are the threats of tomorrow, right? Non-state, state actors and so forth in the cyber domain. So like an example being, I helped co-create and I'm the technical lead for it on the data set called the SMISI, which is the significant multi-domain incidents against critical infrastructure, right? And so we look at incidents across the various the critical infrastructures, mostly defined through DHS. And specifically, we're looking at not just like every single incident, like every single ransomware incident, we're looking at those that disrupt do cyber physical disruption, or a term that we developed is that cyber operational, where operations have been impeded so much that you can no longer rely on your ITC, you can't rely on your IT products, you actually have to go to like back to pen and paper, you know, and so we're collecting this data set that allows us to look at, hey, what are we seeing in terms of patterns? And in particular, cybercrime is one of the biggest areas of concern. Those who are really seeking financial gain, that motivation, you know, ransomware in particular, but also things like crypto mining. You know, we're developing the data set to inform to say, like, hey, where do wow. companies of this type of industry, this type of sector, subsector need to be most focused on in terms of their security awareness? Because as we all know here, it's that the company can't defend everywhere right? They don't, no company has all the resources in the world. No one can do that. You have to be very cognizant of where you can maximize your defenses. So the data set we're hoping will help uh, build that out in terms of the risk management, but also we want to help it in a more applied spaces, especially for the cybersecurity folks down at like the SOC level, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like one product that we're looking at. This is and beautiful, another... by the way. Just just pause yeah. over there. I have I have star eyes. I have hard eyes when I hear <laughs> <laughs> data sets, especially. And uh, you're looking at uh, as even as far as crypto mining. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this going to be available to everyone? Yeah. So we are. So currently, it's a data set that you know you reach out to us. We set up a data use agreement with you. But in the near future, I'm proud to say that we are going to make it much more accessible to the public, but also to anyone who is private sector, public entity, you name it. And it will be a lot more timely in terms of providing actionable updates. So we're hoping to get it to, we would like it. We're not sure if we're there, but we would like to get it to like a more real time, like, hey, we're batch uploading every other week or so forth, right? Uh, New incidents, right? We're trying to get there with this product. And again, accessibility. Can't go into too much of the details now. Don't want to give away all the goodies, but we are moving in. Yeah, we're moving in that direction where SMECI will be much more available, much more actionable for folks. And again, it's like, again, we're trying to cover all the areas of concern, all these sectors. But, and again, because it's a data set and like how we've approached it, we are trying to make it as interdisciplinary as possible. So like, I look at a lot of the areas from where I've worked on in ICSOT, right? And like, um, and my technical aspect of it, like, you know, malware that we're seeing, so on and so forth. But we also have folks that are political scientists, you know, so we look at like, wow. was the company that was impacted a part of a country that is in rivalry or in conflict with another one, right? So we provide these variables, you know, so that it can inform multiple stakeholders, right? So it's not just so cool. Your, so it's not just your SOC people, it could be C-suite, it could be so on and so forth. So, so cool. So cool. So <laughs> diverse data from diverse perspectives. I cut you off though. That is one thing. That's one product. Now we're talking about just to bring us back to where you were and pick up there. We're talking about the future and what start is mm. doing to that end and then what your role is going to be. So please, please feel free to continue. Yeah. So I don't know where the, the role goes. I mean, for me, I've always been one of those folks that's sort of like, I don't care what title I have as long as I'm providing a good for folks. I know it's weird wherever I've worked, private sector or academia, where everyone's like so-and-so researcher, so-and-so head. I'm like, that's great. For me, it's more about like, it's the mission and providing what I can. So for the future, my big thing is definitely working on SMACI. The other aspect, again, is like I've moved more and more to the area of information operations over the last couple of years. And a colleague and I are coming up with the a metric to help us understand misinformation more at the genesis level of like what components are necessary for something like that to form misinformation or disinformation. We're trying to develop a tool for it, in fact, and it's early stages. And this is something that I'm very proud of and really looking to get more off the ground because misinformation, as we know, and MDM in general is a truly significant problem. And our concern, my colleague and I, it's like, it's a concern that cybersecurity really should be, the cybersecurity industry should be really tackling because it's abuse of information technology systems in a lot of cases, right? Abuse, you know, and so forth. And so that's something I'm looking forward to. I can't speak so much about it because we try to keep it under wraps, but hopefully in the next year, we'll have something to share with the broader audience about it. Okay. We're really excited. But um, for me in the future, that's kind of where I'm moving towards is continuing with my SMECI work, but also building out more understanding of how misinformation, disinformation, malinformation forms. And if I go back into a more traditional role of analyst or manager and so forth, maybe that's in the books. But um, 
I really just hope to inform customers, but also just the general public of like what threats are out there and how can you better protect yourself, you know? And if that's just through a data set or a research paper, then that's good enough for me. That's uh, in fact, incredible. (laughs) The next year is going to be awesome. You are driven by passion and by purpose. These two things, when people are driven purely by capital, uh, things don't often pan out that well, or ego, hubris, pride, but here you're doing Mm. all of this to make a better world. And that is the intention of cybersecurity. That is why people are here day in and day out. It's in the name of the function. To make something secure is to put yourself in the front line in order to protect the others. It just is what it is, and you are fitting that function. So love to hear it. I'm looking forward to the next year. Let's take all of your experience so far. Very wealthy experience in cybersecurity. Why? Because wealth is by the knowledge you've built. What are three pieces of actionable advice that you give to security practitioners and researchers listening in? Oh, great. So I'll split this up one for one and then one shared advice. So for practitioners, especially those, again, as we talked in the SOC, don't hesitate. If you're seeing TTPs line up, if you're thinking you have an incident on your hand, don't be afraid to escalate that. You know, I don't think it's the cry wolf thing that we need to be worried about. It's just, it's the inaction of it. I think if you are in a position and you see something across your system, you absolutely need to escalate, in my opinion. If you have that, and it comes down to a gut instinct in a sense, right? I think that's something you absolutely need to do. Do not hesitate on that. For researchers, security researchers, the thing I think is it's that you know, they have to avoid stovepiping research in this area. There is not one discipline that fits at all, especially in cybersecurity anymore. It's not what it was 10, 20 years ago. As we're seeing even in our own organization, what I work on, security research is interdisciplinary. Work with people who you don't know and work with folks that have a skill set that you're not comfortable with or that you don't understand because they can bring something to the table in this research, in this area that can actually elevate and enrich it, right? I think that's something that absolutely needs to happen. And I'm glad to see that it actually is happening in a lot of places and a lot of academic institutes too. And then third, for both of them, collaboration. This is something I think more and more needs to happen between particularly private sector and academia is stronger collaboration, like truly met it out that you have an institute that you can go to for research, for that back data and so forth that we're trying to say like, hey, we have all these issues. Can you help us out, flush us out further? Or like, hey, we have a research idea, but we didn't, may not necessarily have the time or the personnel to work on it. You know, collaboration is key because it actually helps us illuminate on threats we may not have seen, illuminate on vulnerabilities and issues that we may not have known about. But then also, again, as, I, as we've talked about, that second order effect of reaching out and building a better PR experience and image in a sense always helps. So for both of them, going across and seeking out researchers or going to the private sector from the other side. Collaboration is key. You summed up this entire podcast episode in those three pieces of advice. (laughs) Incredibly done. Very, very well done. That You've written plenty good conclusions in your lifetime, I think, to be able to do that off the cuff. So (laughs) thank you, Reiner. Reiner, where can our listeners reach you and find you? Because I really hope they do reach out to collaborate with START. Yeah, right. So if you want to collaborate you know, with me personally, you can always reach me on LinkedIn. It's one of those areas. I don't update it often enough, but it is an area that you can reach me personally with. 
But then you can also reach me at um, StartUMD. So it's simple. It's www.start.umd.edu. I'm there. I have uh, my list of publications that I've done, some of the work. But you can reach me there. And our folks there that are really, you know, if you do the a general email to the site, I'll hear about the next day. So if someone wants to reach out to me that way. But you can reach out to me personally through my email. To not, uh, my public email for at the university is rwburn, B-U-R-N, at umd.edu. So I um, will promptly reply if you want to do collaboration. I'm all for it. Thank you for that. Renner, what a joy to have you here. I hope to have you again to catch up on that research that you are going about in the next year and just learn more about the developments you have. In the meantime, I'm more than certain that listeners will be able to play this, replay this, and continuously get actionable advice from you. So thank you for making this such a wonderful episode and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a wonderful chat. And again, I look forward to the future and definitely catching up with you when my research comes out uh, more fully. So thank you again. Absolutely. And thank you all for joining, listening in. You know where to reach Reiner. You know where to reach us at the Future of Cybercrime podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you at the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.